0: Hey there, saints. Um, Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, as we'll be starting this evening. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we come to you, and it is so humbling to know that we who were once just enemies of you, that you've set your love upon us. You've allowed your son to come and die for us. That he would come and pay that terrible price, that at that point we become near to you. We're so grateful for how you constantly reveal yourself, how through the worship and through the word and through this fellowship you reveal your son. We ask that once again we would begin to see him, see him in his glory, see him in his majesty, see him. As the the king, Lord, not only of Israel, but the very king of kings and the king of our lives as well. That we would see you so in your majesty, Lord, that we would, with everything that we are, just step aside so that you could rule and you could reign in our own lives. We would trust your word and trust your leading. And so, Father, just once again, truly, this evening, give us ears to hear what your Spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name, and all the saints of God said, Amen. 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 All right, Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. Now, what we did um, last week is we covered through those areas of the parables. So we went through them, and and the the way of the parables, if you want just a good overview... It's just a way for the Lord to show um, who are my followers, who is part of my kingdom. And so he would go through those listings of parables. He would talk about the seeds. He would talk about, you know, the, the, um, both the external and the internal corruption of what would happen. He'd go through and talk about the, the, the different ways where he would see these are the treasures that I'm after. And so in the timeline, and now we come lastly to um, verse 54. And it says after he finished the parables, of course, he he came and he departed from um, where he was. And then in verse 54 of Matthew 13, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joses, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, he did not do many, mighty works there because of their unbelief. At this point, he comes to his own country. And even as he comes back to that area um, where he's there... He now teaches them, and understand, once again, he's not teaching them in the synagogue, he's teaching them in their synagogue. He realizes that, and he's trying to show them that, listen, what you guys are doing as far as religion isn't what I'm here to demonstrate as far as a relationship with God. These are your synagogues, they weren't the synagogue, they weren't his synagogues, they were their synagogues. And he goes over to where they are at. And so, while he's there, They were astonished, and they said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They were looking at Jesus, and what they weren't seeing is they weren't seeing here the Messiah. They weren't seeing him as the King of Kings. They were only seeing him in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? We know you. You grew up around here. Yeah, you were a good kid, but you were just a kid you know, how is it that you have this wisdom? How is it that you're doing these works? What is it that's going on? And so what they're doing is they're trying to look at the familiar as far as what they want to believe versus what is right in front of their eyes. And understand that many times where our faith is, God begins to do things and it's right in front of our eyes. And we say, well, that can't be true because this is what I know to be true. Understand what we know to be true. The scripture says that we see through this glass darkly. And we don't fully understand everything that's going on. And even right now, while we're here, we've talked about this before. We see a pinprick of what's going on. That that's all you see because you don't understand what's going on in the spiritual. You don't understand what's going on with the angelic and the demonic and what the enemy is doing in the hearts of people. um, What he's trying to... Um, how we're going to go through this teaching and how the enemy will use certain things to distract us and all of a sudden I'm going to be making this great point and all of a sudden something is like, oh, you're all looking over here. You just completely, but that's what the enemy does. We don't fully understand everything that God is doing through this. And so they're looking on sight. They're looking at what we know, what we believe in, and they won't budge from what they already believe And keep in mind that one of the keys to faith is, the keys to faith is you should always be growing, always be growing. When it comes to Scripture, keep in mind that Scripture is what God has revealed of Himself, but He's still going to take you into another layer of Scripture and reveal even more about Himself, and then another layer of Scripture and even more about Himself The key being is when he does reveal more about himself, what is our response? A lot of times the response of a Christian is, I don't want God to grow. I'm already struggling with who he is now. So they'll slice it, dice it, chop it up, and shove it into their well-pre-made theology. This is what I know of God, and I don't want to go beyond this. And God constantly wants to stretch our minds, stretch our hearts, stretch our understanding of the word of who he is, of who Christ is and what Christ wants to do in us, and in our hearts, and in this fellowship. And so they go back to what they know. They said, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? His brothers, James, Josie, Simon, Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? So there are certain people who believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, um, this kind of throws it out. Jesus had brothers, Jesus had sisters, and so Joseph and Mary, as we looked about it when we we're there, um, they had relations after the birth of Jesus. So we do see that here Mary was not a perpetual virgin. So anyone who tries to sell you that they're an era of scripture, just bring them to this point because we see that he has the brothers James, Josie's, Simon, and Judas. And his sisters, are they not with us? So where then did this man get all these things? So they're looking at the natural. They're not looking at the spiritual. They're looking at the natural. Says, so How is it that a man could get these things? How is it that a man can have this wisdom? How is it that a man can have this, this power demonstrated? And understand that we realize that even what we do, it's not us who do it. It's the spirit of God. It's the grace of God. And I love how Paul constantly refers to just being filled with the spirit and just relying on the grace of God. It isn't anything that that God can't touch any man and have any man communicate a word. He can do that. However, what happens is, is I have a whole bunch of people praying for me and just God in his grace directs me and leads me. He kind of gives me a mind that sees things not in the norm anyways, and so that sort of helps. But then the spirit kind of uses that and inflames that and grows that. But always reveals somewhere in scripture, this is the truth. Here's the truth. Look to this. So as we go through these things, my, my goal is not to get you to discount other things you've heard. But to add to that. To say, here's another layer. Here's another layer. Grow and, and understand what the foundation of the word of God begins to teach. Well, they're curious, where did this man get all these things? So, verse 57, they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, at this point, I want to bring you back to that one passage that we already read in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. And in Matthew 11, verse 1, it makes this statement. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. He sends out the, the group two by two so that they can go and they can teach. And what Jesus does is in a sense he honors them. He doesn't send them to their own towns. He goes into their cities. He's the one. And why does he do that? Well, even Jesus here is saying, listen, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house Now, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Keep in mind, it didn't say he didn't do any works. And so their unbelief limited what he could do. Why? Because they weren't willing to come. You know, Jesus, you're not willing to come to me that you might have eternal life. I'm I'm wanting to give you these gifts, but if you're not wanting to come, I can't give them to you. So it's one of those things where we realize, yeah, God wants to bless But there's still this choice of man. Are you willing to come and receive fully what God is wanting to give? And so here, he did not do many mighty works because of their unbelief. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't do any works. He did works, but he wasn't able to do many mighty works. They had this point where they just didn't believe. They couldn't receive that here's a man. And even when they saw his words... Notice here where they said at the end of verse 54, where did this man get these wisdom, this wisdom and these mighty works? They heard his wisdom, they saw the mighty works, and yet they still couldn't believe that, yeah, this could be for me. Remember that woman who had a flow of blood and she said, if only I could touch the hem of his garment, I know I will be made well. And she through the face said, if I could just get to Jesus, if I go to Jesus, if I could be near Jesus. And here, Jesus is there in their very midst and they don't believe that Jesus is what? The Jesus we know. They don't believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Come. And they don't understand his power, that his power and his message was for them so that they could come into a right relationship with God. And so we begin to see here that this continues to be this area where there's this rejection as they have this conflict with the king. Well, the next one that does here in chapter 14, verse 1 at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, he's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. He believes actually that John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded, that came back in this spirit form and that this was the spirit of John the Baptist working in Jesus and that he couldn't do this because he was who he claimed to be. He had to be something else. So in the same way as the the people of Nazareth saw Jesus as something they could control even here, Herod the Tetrarch, he also tries to put Jesus for something that he could control in his mind. Oh, it's John the Baptist. It's the spirit of John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's what these powers are. So everyone hears his words. Everyone sees the works. And yet you can do one of two things. You can either attribute them to Jesus Christ, or you could be in a sense like those Pharisees that saw him you know, heal that, that mute man and the deaf man and said, he did this by Beelzebub. He didn't do it through the spirit of God. There were many people who were there saying, could this be the Christ? Could this be the the, the, um, the the son of David? Could this be the one? And they rejected it in the same way as he goes to Nazareth. They could have asked, could this be the Christ? Could this be him? But they rejected it saying, no, he's the, son, he's the carpenter's son. He's, you know, his mother's Mary, his brothers and his sisters. And even here, Herod the Tartar, He also goes and he rejects that point to who Jesus is. Now, Herod the Tetrarch, I don't know if, I don't want to get too complicated into this, but what happens is this Um, Herod the Great, the one who, you know, began with the building of the temple, Herod the Great literally had five different wives. And through the five different wives, he had the five different sons. Now, with these sons, there's three that are of note. Um, there's Herod Philip, there's Herod Antipas, and then there's Herod Aristobulus. Now, these three, I'm going to focus on these three because Herod the Tetrarch, he is, in, in a sense, he's Herod Antipas. Why do I point that out? Well, he was, Tetrarch means he's a ruler of a fourth. That's all it means. He's the ruler of a fourth. There's the quadrants that were there, and, and Herod was a ruler of one of the, 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 the quadrants, And so he was um, Herod Antipas, he was the second son of Herod the Great. Now through this, the the last of his sons was called Herod Philip, he's the youngest of it. Now there's one other son, Herod Aristobulus. Now he has um, a daughter and her name is Herodias. And we're gonna see her in just a moment. So there's, there's three sons of Herod the Great. The first one I want you to see here is Herod the Tetrarch. He's Herod Antipas. Now, he's the one who says that Jesus was John the Baptist. Why does he do so? Well, in verse 3, it makes a statement. For Herod had laid hold of John and had bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John said to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, "'Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter.' And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oaths, because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother.' Then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And now we see as this scene begins to unfold that Herod himself, he first grabbed John and he bound him. Remember when John was there in prison and he was one of those who came, you know, he sent his disciples to the Lord and said, hey, are you the one or do we, you know, do we look for another? And of course, that's where Jesus said, hey, you know, go back, tell John all the things that you see. Now here, the reason he was in prison is because of this. Herod was very upset because John the Baptist had made a statement in verse four. John said, it's not lawful for you to have her. So keep in mind that Herodias, what she does is each one of the brothers, of course, come from a same father, different mother. And so what Herodias does is she marries her half-uncle. And she marries her half-uncle Philip. And and eventually what happens is that Antipas comes and he finds himself in love with Herodias. She finds himself in love with him. So she causes him he causes her to divorce Philip so he can marry her and then he divorces his wife so he can marry her. So what she does is she divorces one of her uncles to marry another uncle. And so this is where she's at. And if you wonder why she's not right, well, take a look at her husband's. I mean, she's, it's, she's just not quite right as it is. When we see what she's doing, John here, he tells um Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother Philip's wife. So he he talks to him. This is right, this is wrong, and what you're doing is called adultery, and you cannot do this if, if you want to call yourself, you know, any follower of God. Now keep in mind that he was an Edomite, which means that he was a descendant of Esau. And so you have here, you know, in a sense, almost a relationship. So he's not fully Israel, but he is of, um, of Abraham, of Isaac. And, and But Jacob and Esau were the ones that had split, but he is through Isaac, and so he's an Edomite. But what we see here is Herod now, in verse 3, Herod laid hold of John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And because John said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. I want to take you for just a moment and I want to share with you a passage in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to do this right now because it's very close to what you're seeing, but you're going to get a little bit of added information. So I'm going to read, part of it's going to be duplicated, part of it's going to be new for you in this passage. But in Mark 6 verses 14 through 21, it begins this, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. He said... He's John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. Therefore, these powers are at work in him. Others said it is Elijah. Others said it is the prophet or one like the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, This is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, Philip's wife. For he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And now it says this at the end of verse 20. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. It's one of those interesting things here that that Herod would talk to John over and over again. And he would talk to John, he'd actually walk part of the counsel that John would give, not all of it. He wouldn't say, no, I can't have my brother's wife. I'll do what I want, but I'll receive a lot of the rest that you had. And what's interesting, in verse 20 here of Mark 6, he said that he knew he was a just and only man. He protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then in verse 21, then an opportune day came when Herod was on his birthday and he gave a feast. So this is where we are now. So what we see here is when we're back in our text in Matthew 13, verse 4, because John said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Verse 5, and although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude. In other words, John was a holy man because they counted him as a prophet. But when, verse 6, Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Now, her name is called Salome. S-A-L-O-M-E is how it's written out. And that's her name. This is the, the daughter of Herodias. And so she now comes and she dances before her uncle, who is also her stepfather. Crazy as it is, this is what happens. So she begins to dance a dance, and what happens is this, that dance isn't just disco. She's not just doing ballet. It's a very seductive dance, and what happens is, is that dance is pleasing him. It's getting him so he's just enjoying and and so, therefore, as she danced and it pleased him, verse 7, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So now you have an oath. Now he's swearing with an oath. You can have anything you want. And so the turn the comes up to half my kingdom. You can have what you want. So she, verse 8, having been prompted by her mother. Now keep in mind that it was Herodias who really had the hatred of John, more so. Um, And so although, like verse 5 says, he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude. But he, every time he got up with John, he was blessed by John and heard him gladly and did the things that John counseled, or a lot of the things that he counseled. But at this point, Herodias has that main thing. So, verse 8, she, having been prompted by her mother, said, give me John the Baptist head here on a platter. She's asking for the head, not just the death. Understand how morbid here Herodias is and how Salome follows that leading. I want his head here on a platter. Give me his head. Separate from the body, bring the head in here. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, verse 9, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. Now, at this point, he makes an oath, and, and we've you know, talked about different oaths before and how when you give an oath, you're bound to do it. However, there are certain things called foolish oaths, where we don't fully understand what we're doing. And here he gives an oath. He says, I will give you whatever you want, and when this word comes, He has an opportunity to what? To humble himself, to say he was wrong, and to say that what you're wanting is wrong. I won't do this wrong. Yet he reasons through, I can do this wrong because it's an oath. I can do this wrong. And how many times do we allow the enemy to lie to us to say, we can do this wrong because of this reason? There's no reason to do a wrong. There isn't one where it was like, well, you know what? I needed to lie to protect her. I needed to lie to protect me. No, you lied because you're a liar. There isn't a reason you need to lie. You can speak the truth or you can speak nothing. Sometimes people ask questions and they lie. And it's like, you don't have to lie, but I don't have to tell you what I'm doing. I don't have to tell you why I'm doing something. So just because somebody asks a question doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give them a life story. People want to know information. Sometimes God will say, yeah, share that information and ask for a prayer. There's nothing wrong with it. Other times, saying, you don't need to share this information with this person. Um, you know, I, I want this just, it's my own story. I don't want to tell it to you because I don't want you telling other people. And so we realize here that he gives this oath and he follows this oath and he begins to do this oath. And even though it was, The oath itself was not a bad oath. It was a good thing. But when she takes what was good and turns it to bad, that means what? Well, you're you're not corrupting what was good. And if it's corrupting what was good, he doesn't have to follow that oath. Remember when Jephthah, when he says, whatever comes through my door, I'm going to offer it to God. And of course, his daughter comes out the door. And so, um, you know, it's, it's an offering that he then gives his daughter completely to the Lord. As we see this here, there are certain times that there's oaths. And what here Herod does is he's now sorry. He's sorry, but what happens? He still doesn't. It. It's not that he's sorry and he's repentant with godly repentance. He's sorry with a worldly sorrow. And, and that still leads to death. And so we see here that he's sorry, nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him. He didn't want to lose face. He committed to be given. So rather than saying, listen, what you're wanting is wrong, we're not going to do that, and standing up and doing the right thing, he now literally just bends to the pressure of the people and not wanting to humble himself or not wanting to look like what he did was wrong. And and so he continues to do this next wrong. So, verse 10, he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. So here she gets the head, she brings it into her mom. And verse 12, then his disciples came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Two things of note here that I do want you to see is in verse 12, when the disciples come and they take away the body, they say this, they took away the body and they buried it. They didn't bury him. I think this is important to note that they know you're not here anymore. This is a tent. This is a body. I'm going to bury it, but I'm not burying you. And so the disciples of John understand God. They understand the, um, what he talked about of his baptism. They understand that he pointed, this is the one who takes away the sins of the world. They understand about you know, life after death. And so they realize, John, you're not here anymore. And it's a beautiful passage where, understand, they come and they're grieving. They bury the body. And and it's important that it doesn't say the disciples came and took away the body and they buried him. No, they just buried it. He's now separated. And then they went and they told Jesus. This is where it's really unique because the first thing they do is in this period of bad news is they go to the Lord. They just go to Jesus and they say, listen, we need to talk to you. And and I think so often when it comes to areas of of bad news or bad timings, where do you go? Where do you run? And these guys, the first thing it is like, we need to go tell Jesus. We have to go to Jesus. We need to tell him. And so they they, they make their way to the Lord. And as they, they make their way to him, what Jesus does is this. Verse 13, when he hears it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Jesus, at this point, hears the death of his cousin. He now goes to be in a place and he wants to say, I just need some time alone. I need to get away. Um, I need time by myself. And so he does. He departs from there. He gets into a boat. He goes to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, when they heard that Jesus was going, what they did was this. They followed him on foot from the cities. So what they're doing is like, hey, Jesus is heading on in a boat. So they're watching this boat and they're following that boat on land. So wherever that boat's going, they're now trekking on land. And when Jesus, verse 14, went out, he saw a great multitude and he was healed with compassion for them and he healed their sick. Here's a good question. And I think it's important to make a note of this because there are going to be many times where it's like, you know what, I just need to step aside for a while. I just need a break for a while. And how often do we sometimes think, I need to step aside, I need to have this break? And yet when Jesus comes out, all of a sudden, rather than having this peace and tranquility, there's a bunch of people with a need. So what do you do? Do you get back in a boat and you find somewhere else? Do you cross the river? Do you, you know, play tag with these people? And what Jesus does is this. He sees the multitude and he's moved with compassion. And then he begins his ministry to them. And he begins to heal their sick. So as Jesus gets out, the question comes is when are you comfortable about departing from a ministry and saying this isn't my ministry right now. I'll come back to that. In other words, like a sabbatical. Do I need to take a break? Do I need to take some time away? What do I need to do? And we see here that Jesus realizes that he sees this multitude and all of a sudden he's moved. Like, yeah, I need a break. But what I'm, what I'm sensing here is this. Is there's a leading Within my heart, within that spirit, that has given me a compassion for what's going on. And what happens is this how do you know when you're supposed to take a break, and how do you know when you're not supposed to take a break? And I'll be honest with you if your heart's not in it, you need to take a break. Whether you see work there or not, if your heart is not in it, if your heart isn't there being moved by the Lord, then you need to step away because God doesn't just need your works, He wants the heart, He wants a relationship. And so let me just share with you right now, if your heart is where I'm not in love with the Lord and I'm not sensing him, you need to step away and fall in love with God again. Just step away. He doesn't need your work. He wants your heart. And and this is how you know, and I love how Jesus really shows us through the spirit, through this passage, what it is when you need to take that break. He wants to take a break. He's actually taking the break, and then God brings ministry to him. So God brought this ministry to him, and he shows his disciples, listen, here's the people, I have compassion, and he just continues that ministry. He needs time by himself, and he figures, well, once this is done, then I'll get time by myself. And, and what he's going to do is this. It's sort of like a power nap. He sort of has a power time. And that power time is just a time of prayer. And keep in mind that, you know, people need, they say, I need to get a lot of time away. And sometimes you don't need that. Sometimes you just need a power time of prayer. You need to get on your face before the Lord, empty it all out, and let him fill you afresh. And it's, it's almost like being gone a week. It's like, oh my goodness, I just feel so good. I feel so empowered. I can continue on in the ministry. And so, We see here that this is what's going on. Now, here is Jesus goes. He departs. He wanted to be by himself. Verse 14, when he went out, he saw the great multitude. He was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. Here, the people were there. They followed Jesus. He had been with them. He was healing them. He was ministering to them. And now, when it was late, his disciples came and said, You need to get rid of these people. Um, They have needs. We can't fulfill these needs. And let them go and learn what, you know, some people believe scripture says God helps those that help themselves. Send them out, send them to a village, let them get some food. And what Jesus does is this. Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. So you have to understand that Jesus here is not trying to say, hey, this is you know, self-help where you know, they're going to take care of themselves. What he's declaring is this. He wants to let his disciples know that when Jesus is around, there's no such thing as a limitation. And I think it's so important for you and I to recognize that when Jesus is present, there's no such thing as, oh, we can't do that because of this. There's no such thing as a limitation. When Christ is there, when Christ is the one who's leading, um, he's gonna do everything that he needs. So he's trying to teach his disciples as far as limitations with him. So he goes to them and he says, listen, They said, you need to send them away. And he says, no, you guys need to feed them. So I love the heart where he said, listen, they do not need to go away. You need to give them something to eat. And so at this point, he says, you're the one that needs to feed them. So how are they going to feed them? Well, we see here in verse 17, they said to them, we have here only Five loaves and two fish. So at this point, you know, we have these limitations. We only have this little bit. What are we going to do? There's only so much that we can. And and it says, okay, this is what what you have, but understand, um, he's not asking and saying, you know, just, just what do you have? He's saying, you have me. Now, not just these loaves and fishes, you have me. So even though you have this very minor thing that you think we only have these these five loaves and a couple of fish, he says, yeah, you may have that, but you have me as well. And so what he's going to do is this. He's going to say initially, verse 18, bring them here to me. And this is the key to ministry. You take what you have, even if it's just you. Just bring it to the Lord. Just bring it to Jesus and watch what He does. The key to any success in ministry is this you put what you have in His hands. If you only have, you know, like like one or two scriptures that you've memorized, put it in His hand and say, Lord, use these that you have given to me. I'm going to give them back to you. Use them to fulfill what you want to do in your life. If you you give what you have to the Lord and it's in his hand, he can do anything with it. But watch what he does with it. So he says initially, where he says, you give them something to eat. But in order for them to give them something to eat, they have to first do what? Go through him. So when he says here in verse 16, you give them something to eat. Verse 18, he says, bring them here to me. So you're going to to do this ministry, but the ministry isn't going to be separate from me. The ministry is going to be through me. So do you understand the key to what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples as far as limitations? There isn't such a thing as a limitation when it's Jesus and when you bring this through him. Now what he does is this. Verse 19, he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass and he took the five loaves and he took the... The two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude, so they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now, those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. So people call this the feeding of the 5,000, but that's an error. It's the feeding of the 5,000 men plus women and children. That's what this miracle is. It's not just, oh, Jesus, oh, well, it's a good thing there was only 5,000 because there would have been, you know, 5,000 and then some. He could have struggled. No. Five loaves and two fish in the Lord's hand is not a limitation. Why? Because what he's going to do is this. He looks up to heaven. He says, Father, this is for your glory. He blesses them. Understand that he puts his signature here. He says, this is my will. This is my work. So he blesses them, and then he breaks them, and then he gives him the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples then gives them to the multitudes. So what he does is he takes it, he blesses it, and then he breaks it. I hate to say it. No, I don't hate to say it. I need to say it. Um, The key to ministry, successful ministry many times is this. It's being broken. And if it wants to grow and multiply, what he has to do is he has to break it. And when it's broken, then all of a sudden, watch what happens, what God does to... um, those kind of things that are broken. If you're familiar with that passage in Mark chapter 14. In Mark chapter 14, what happens is there's a woman here who wants to worship the Lord. And and what she does is this. In Mark 14, beginning in verse 3. It says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil as Meitner. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves, and why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. So what happens is here this woman has this alabaster flask and it's, it's been said that it would be her dowry. This is her inheritance. This is everything that she would have. And she breaks that and she pours it over the head of the Lord. Now she pours, she breaks it first. Then when it's broken, then it can be what? Used to worship. Once it's broken, then it can be poured out upon his head. But until it's broken, it's still in there. And so there's something to be said about here. It has to be broken. Um, Remember there in the the book of Judges, in chapter 7, it talks about a man by the name of Gideon. And Gideon, he goes against the Midianites, and the Midianites are like over 10,000 people. And and immediately, what Gideon begins to do is, is God begins to whittle down the number and he whittles down the number till there's only 300. And what Gideon does is this, he gives everyone a torch, everyone a pitcher, and everyone a trumpet. And as they surround the army, what happens is this, the torches are there, the light is there, but they're all inside these clay pitchers. And, and a signal, they break the pitchers, and when the pitchers are broken, those clay pots, then all of a sudden the light begins to shine. And there's this incredible victory that happens, but it happens through what? It happens through the clay pots being broken and then the light shining out. And isn't that just like us? We're the clay pots, right? There's the light of Christ that's in us and it's when the pots are broken that the light shines. So there's something about here. The Lord is very specifically taking these things, they're now his, he blesses them. He puts his stamp on them. He puts his mark on it. And after he breaks it, then he gives it. Remember what the Lord said through Paul when he talked about communion? There in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul said that that I gave to you that which I also received from the Lord. And on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take, eat, for as often as you um, eat this bread... um, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so you have this communion, the breaking of the bread. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. So keep in mind, there has to be this breaking process that God does. Now, sometimes the breaking process isn't kind of what we think. Remember when Moses was talking about his ministry And what he said is this, that the first 40 years of his life, there in the book of Acts, he said I was there being taught with the best teachers there that Egypt had to offer. And I was 40 years thinking I was somebody. And then I tried to say, hey, you guys would know that I'm your redeemer, right? Well, they didn't. So what happened was him and his arrogance said, I know I'm supposed to be your redeemer. You guys should know that I'm your redeemer, but they rejected him the same way that Israel rejected Jesus the first time. Well, as Moses then goes away, spend 40 years in the backside of a desert being a nobody. First, he was somebody like, oh, everybody was, you know, wanting to just hang out with Moses. Now he's nobody. He's a shepherd out there. And then the last 40 years of his life was God was saying, Moses, I want to show you that I can use a nobody. You have to become a nobody for me to use you. And so we see there's this interesting thing about being broken. And so with this, he takes the bread, he takes the fish, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it to the disciples. So it goes through him, he gives it to the disciples, and then they give to the multitudes. Understand that what happens is this. If you're wondering who does the work of the ministry, the scripture says this. You guys do the work of the ministry. My job isn't to do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you To do the work of the ministry. When I was a new Christian, I did the ministry. And it was difficult for me when I first became a teacher that I wanted to teach and do the ministry. And God says, listen, when you're doing the ministry, no one else can step up. And there are times where I'll step back and I'll wait and I'll wait and I'll pray. Lord, when are you going to raise someone up to do the ministry? And eventually, guess what? He raises someone up. But it's not about launching off right away to do the work of the ministry. My job is to equip you. Your job is to do the work of the ministry. So when you see this, that's what he does. My job, bring you to Jesus. You go through him. Let him break you whenever he needs to. And then he's going to use you. He's going to send you out. He's going to be there like Isaiah where he said, Hey, who will go for me? Who am I going to send? Isaiah said, Here am I. send me. I will go for you. And this is what the Lord does. So as he blesses it in verse 19, he breaks it and then he gives it to the disciples and the disciples then give it to the multitudes. So at this point as they give the multitudes it says so they all ate and were filled. The term in the Greek literally means they were glutted. They were literally stuffed. And so you could say this. So they ate and it was like after Thanksgiving. That's a perfect translation. That they ate and they were all filled. And then after they ate and after they were all filled, they took up 12 baskets full of the fragments that remained. So after they ate everything, they still had leftovers. Now, These aren't giant baskets, these are smaller baskets. And so then he, at this point, just opens up this beautiful situation where now in verse 21, now he tells us those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. This is what God is able to do with just five loaves and two fish. So we see here that there is no such thing as a limitation when Jesus is involved. And once you recognize it's about Jesus and it's about who he is, recognizing who he is. Now, the people back in Nazareth, you're just a carpenter's son. Herod, you gotta be here, the, the, the spirit of John, you know, the, the, the Baptist, come back. No, he is God. And at this point, his disciples are realizing something about here with Jesus Christ There's no such thing as a limitation. And if you take that into your ministries, whatever you have, give it to Christ. Give it fully to him. Let him bless it. Let him break it and let him give it back. And sometimes that is gonna be me. Sometimes that is gonna be you. Sometimes that's gonna be something that you want to offer to the Lord. He says, listen, you can't give it to me like this. I'm gonna take it and I'm gonna break it. Because when I break it, then the fragrance can come out. When I break it, then the light can shine forth. When I break it, like my body broke it for you, then you can have life. There has to be a breaking in order for there to be the continuing work. And this is what God does. He humbles. He breaks. And then when he breaks, he multiplies. So in other words, you know, that if you have one piece of, of cookie, you break it, you have two. Well, the amazing thing is this. That when God breaks the cookies, you have two that are twice as big as the original. And then you can break it again. And then it you know, just keeps growing. It's not like you break it and then you get two halves, which is the same. No, when God breaks it, now you have two holes. And that's what he does. He constantly says, I'm the one who's going to bless. I'm the one who's going to grow. And so the feeding of these five loaves and two fishes... Literally fed 5,000 men besides women and children. I'll tell you what, when it talks about the multitudes following Christ, there were multitudes that followed him. And so think about this. I want to be alone. This is Jesus. I just heard about the death of John. I want to be alone. So he steps out and he sees a crowd of over 5,000 people. 5,000 men plus women and children. And what does he do? Amazingly, he goes out and he has compassion and he heals them. He teaches them. He ministers to them. An incredible thing that God does. Well, then in verse 22, we see this next point as far as limitations. Verse 22, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. So when he says this, In verse 22, immediately, now this is kind of a rush. Jesus made the disciples get in the boat. He makes them, you get in the boat, you guys head across. Now you're going to go before me to the other side. So what does that mean? I'll follow you. You get into the boat, you go before me. The implication is I will come after you while he sends the multitudes away. So by the word saying, he went before him, Understand, that implies that he would follow after. So, verse 23, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray, and when evening came, he was alone there. Wow, here he's finally alone. He's alone because what? He gets into a mountain, and I'll tell you what, I don't know how many of you have to work that hard to be alone. Here, Jesus, he gets in a boat, goes, all right, we got a multitude of people, 5,000 men plus women and children, and the only way for him to be alone is what? Climb up a mountain. Climb, how many people are going to say, Yeah, I'll climb up with you? like, no, no, I just got done eating. I'm full. I'm going to rest. You climb up that mountain. I'll watch you. So he goes up to that mountain, and he's now by himself. And what's interesting is this he goes up on the mountain by himself to pray. He doesn't want to go up to the mountain. He says, I'm just going to rest. What happens is he's going to get filled. And there's a difference. When you're tired in the ministry, the key is not resting. The key is being filled. Because what ministry does, if it's done correctly, it empties you. And resting doesn't fill you. Filling fills you. And so you can rest and it's okay to rest, but understand if you're not being filled when you're resting, then you're just resting. And you, you can't come back filled for the ministry, you can't be emptied out again. So the key to ministry is just being poured out and poured out and poured out in the same way as, you know, here he would fill up these baskets and he'd pour them out and come back and they'd pour them out so much so that they had these baskets left over. Well, once he sends the multitude away, he goes and he goes up on this mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was alone there. Night comes on, evening's there, and it says, verse 24, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Keep in mind that there in the Sea of Galilee that you have these mountains that are around it, and sometimes you have where these mountains create almost a a tunnel for the wind to pick up. So you have a lot of wind that's pushed into a little space, and it would create where you would have a very calm um, lake and then all of a sudden these winds would come and it would be a really rough lake. That's what happened here this evening. They were leaving. Jesus said, go to the other side. I'll be with you. And it says here, verse 25, now in the fourth watch of the night. Now when Jesus said, sent them away, after he sends them, one more time, let me go to verse 22. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into a boat. So you we don't know what time that is, but follow what happens. He, they get into a boat, boat to go before him, the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up a mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came. So understand that it wasn't evening when he sent the disciples away. That was a long time. So it was send the disciples send the multitudes home, go up on the mountain, and then it's evening. So these disciples have been on the boat for a while. And it declares this, why why it's so important to recognize that they went long before evening because he had to send them away, send the multitudes away, climb up the mountain, and then evening comes. So understand a timeline that would take. So now the boat, verse 24, is in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, and the wind was contrary. Verse 25, now in the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So that's the fourth watch. So the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between three and six in the morning, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. So evening came, he's there, he's praying. And as as he's there, he now, somewhere between evening, which is around 6 o'clock, and 3 o'clock in the morning, he was there praying. So Jesus had somewhere between 6 to 9 hours of just being alone with the Father. Now, the amazing thing is he was there, and then he begins to walk to his disciples there. So... Verse 25, now the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, what happens is this, there's some times where in the English translation, I find it awkward when it says this in verse 27, be of good cheer, the word in the Greek is um, ego elme, which means I am. He doesn't say, be of good cheer, it is I. He says, be of good cheer, I am. That's the term that he says. So the same way that this is the God who appeared to, to Moses, where he says, who do I say will send me? He says, tell him I am that I am sent you. And so Jesus gave those I am statements. So when he says, be of good cheer, the word is I am. And so he says, do not be afraid. So in other words, have courage, have comfort, I am. So at this point, while that wind is contrary, they've been you know, trying to get across. It's now been for them over six hours, possibly nine hours at the top could be a little bit more than that. They're halfway across. The wind is still contrary. They're not getting anywhere. And so as that wind is there pushing against them, Jesus shows up. They think he's a ghost. He says, listen, be of good cheer. Have courage. I am. Have comfort. And Peter now, verse 28, answered and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. This here statement, I want to pause on it. I want to develop it because Peter now says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. Now remember now when the disciples of John, what they did is when soon as they took the body, they buried it, what? They went to Jesus. First thing, we've got to go to Jesus. Same thing Jesus you want to feed the multitudes? Bring it to me bring it to me, I'll bless it, I'll break it, I'll give it back to you, bring it to me, come to me. Peter doesn't say, Lord, if it's you, command me to walk on the water. I find it interesting that he says, if it's you, command me to come to you. Do you understand where the limitation is no longer? See, it's not the water, it's you. See, the key isn't, I want to walk on water, it's like, I want to come to you. You know, there's a difference. See, someone could say, wow, you know, I've walked on water. Oh, that's one thing. But for someone to say, hey, listen, I went to Jesus, which is the more powerful statement? See, we all think, whoa, walking on water. How amazing is that? No, going to Jesus. That's amazing. So I just had um, just the other night, my granddaughter had given me this, this beautiful thing that she had made. And it says, I am a follower of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, if she walked on the water, it wouldn't bother me, you know, because she did something more important than that. She gave her heart to Jesus Christ. She's now a follower of Jesus. And, and how amazing is that? Walking on water is nothing now. So, so understand what Peter's doing is he's saying, listen, command me to come to you. Command me to come to you. And I think it's important to realize that he needs to get to Jesus. And so he says, command me to come to you. And so Jesus simply said, come. Now understand, Jesus didn't say walk on water. You understand what I'm trying to get at. He doesn't say, hey, walk on the water. He said, come to me. And I want to come to you. And so he says, okay, come to me. <clears throat> I want you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John for just a second, chapter 21. <clears throat> In chapter 21, beginning in verse 7, we're going to see something that's very similar, where Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you. Well, in John chapter 21, verse 7, it begins this, Therefore the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord! Now the funny thing that Peter said, Hey, Lord! If it's you, command me to come to you. He doesn't say that. Notice what Peter does. When the disciples said, it's the Lord. Now, when Peter heard it, that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and he plunged into the sea. It's absolutely incredible. What he wants to do is he wants to get to the Lord. And at this point, something unique does happen, that as he begins to get out of the boat, He begins to simply to walk on water, but I love it how Matthew begins to open up this text because here he says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. Don't command me to walk on water, command me to come to you. Because when I see you, there's no such thing as an obstacle. When I see you, there's no such thing as a limitation. When I see you, you command me to come to you. Anything is possible. I don't have to say, well, what are my options? What are my limitations? There's no such thing when I'm coming to you. So the key being is what? Just just walk to the Lord, go to the Lord. And this is what happens. So he said, come. And when Peter had come out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, now where's his eyes? See, he saw the wind. He saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. It's important to realize that I think that sometimes we think like the legalist that we're going to be heard by our many words. Um, you don't have to have a lot of words to be sincere um, and you don't have to really you know, show emphasis on how sincere you are. I don't think Peter took a long time debating this prayer, thinking, okay, Lord, what should I say now? Lord, save me. He doesn't think. He just, Lord, save me. Instantly what happens? A hand comes out, picks him up, puts him in a boat. How incredible is that, that here we see one of the most sincerest prayers ever. (laughs) Just simply, Lord, save me. And so within this now... He's walking on water, and he says, I want you to command me to come to you. His eyes are on the Lord, but now he, his eyes are off the Lord. It's on the, the, the wind. He sees it as boisterous. He now begins to be afraid, beginning to sink. Now understand, he doesn't just drop right away. And this is important, beginning to sink. He starts going down, all of a sudden, like, something's not holding me up the way it used to. Why? Because his eyes aren't on the Savior. Now that he's looking at the wind, he's seeing what? Here's a limitation. Here's an obstacle. When your eyes are on the Lord and you're fully focused on him and you're you're listening to his command to you. And when God gives a command, that's the enabling. And so he gave the command. The command was to come. Peter was coming. You call me to come. I can come to you. No such thing as a limitation. No such thing as an obstacle until I take my eyes off the Lord. And then what I see is limitations and I see obstacles. At that point, his faith begins to waver. He begins to sink. And as he begins to sink, he simply cries out, Lord, save me. And I love verse 31 and immediately. If you're a, a, a one who marks your Bible or highlights it or underlines it, I think it's important that the... Just where I have my mark, he cried out saying, Lord, save me, and immediately, Jesus. Those are key. He cries out, Save me, immediately, Jesus. And Jesus' is like, Well, let me think about this. No, he's like, I'm going to just let you get down a little bit further. You know, he doesn't let him say, hey, When you're right about there, Peter. He doesn't. As he begins to sink, he says, Lord, save me. Immediately, we begin to see Jesus stretch out his hand and caught him. He catches him, stops him in, in mid sink. As he catches them, he said to them, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so it's so important to realize that, that here, I was here, your eyes are on me, why did you doubt? And so, verse 32, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now, I want you to take this one statement that they're making here in in verse 33 where they say they worshipped him, truly you are the Son of God. Can you imagine what would happen if that statement would have been said in verses 54 through 58 of Matthew 13? Can you imagine if the people of Nazareth worshipped as truly you are the Son of God? What kind of miracles he could have done? I mean, he already did miracles, he already did mighty works, he already said incredible things. They said, Who, "You're doing these works, you're saying these things, yet he couldn't do any more. Why? Because they couldn't believe you are the Son of God. They only looked to limitations. You're the carpenter's son. You're, you're Mary's son. You got brothers. You got sisters. And even Herod couldn't believe that he was God. No, you're you're just John the Baptist. Come back. And so, even with this, we see here the, the multitudes are are they seeing him as that Son of God? Well. Notice what they got to experience. They got to experience the healings. They got to experience his compassion as he healed them, as he taught them, and then he fed them. He fed them all. So they went away simply glutted. They went away filled. And then there were all this extra that was there. And now, as he comes, the disciples now see what he does through walking on the water. Telling Peter to come, and then taking out his hand and catching him, putting him back inside the boat. This is an incredible thing. Now I don't know if you picture of Jesus where you think, oh, he's just this little tiny Jesus, and and I don't think he's that little. But I don't think he's as big as you know Arnold Schwarzenegger either, or some of the you know centers who play football. These guys are huge guys, and you know they could pick you up. Jesus, I don't think he was that big, but you see him holding on to Peter. Now, Peter, tradition calls him the giant. He wasn't a little guy. He was called the giant. He was a big old burly fisherman. And Jesus picks him up, puts him inside the boat. I'll talk about, you know, there's no such thing as a limitation. Think about that. If you got this big old burly fisherman and you're trying to walk on water yourself and then pick him up and put him in a... Understand, with Jesus, there's no such thing as a limitation. There's no such thing as an obstacle. Peter wasn't an obstacle. His size was an obstacle. Where he was was an obstacle. There's no such thing as a limitation or obstacle. And so once they realized, and they said there's no such thing as a limitation, there's no such thing as an obstacle, they begin to worship him and saying, truly, you are the Son of God. I want to segue for just a second because I want to share with you that here you had twelve disciples in boats. One walked on water. One, one sank. Now, granted, one sank, but one walked on water. Now, here's the thing: now, Peter. I don't know if he was ever boasting, "Hey, you know, I walked on water," because they was like, "Yeah, you sank." But, but think about it. Even if you took two steps on water, what is that? What did the eleven do? The other 11 didn't even take a step. They didn't even get their toes wet on water. They didn't even chance it. And yet we see here Peter, Peter goes and and he, he takes that chance. He sees the Lord. There's no such thing as limitation, but then he looks away. And all of a sudden, here's an obstacle. Here's a problem. And what a great lesson for us. I'm so grateful that Peter said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you. So I know who the focal point is. I know what the object is. And I know that when it's God and he gives the calling to come or go or do whatever, there's no such thing as what if this or what about that? Obstacles don't mean anything to God. Remember that there was nothing and he spoke everything into existence. And even when it comes to all the billions and trillions of stars out there, remember when we were just, and he made the stars also. Like, oh, yeah, and by the way, let me make 100 million trillion stars. That's God. So, so, when you look to God, there is no such thing as a limitation, there's no such thing as an obstacle. And so, as they come, those who were in the boat came and worshiped Him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that surrounding region and brought him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. Now, at this point, we're once again seeing that whole issue of the hem. Now, remember, we've talked about it before. I'll give you one more lesson on it quickly. There's a passage in the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 38. And in Numbers 15:38 it says, Speak to the children of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a blue thread through in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry of your own heart, and your own, and to which your own eyes are inclined, and that you may remember and do all my commandments, and be holy for your God. This is what the tassels. This is what the hem would wreck to to direct them. They would have to have this blue thread go all the way through it. Now, the blue to us, as we look to it, it's that color of heaven. It's a representation of of the here is God. It is heaven. It is blue, and so. Here, you have this blue thread that goes through your garments. And what happens is some of the tassels would be blue. Now, what the Pharisees would do is because to have a blue tassel was not a cheap thing. It was very, very difficult to get a blue dye. Like us, we just make blue dyes, and that didn't happen then. Um, it's been said that they had to literally dive into the, the, the thing, get little tiny snails, and they would crush them up, and they would get a blue dye from these snails that they would have to dive into the Mediterranean to get. That's how they would do it. They would, and it was rare. You know, you, there wasn't a lot of people that went snail diving. But when they would get this blue, it would be very costly. And what the Pharisees would do is they would enlarge the border of their garments. They would make these blue tassels really large. What did that mean? I got money to spare. I was doing so good. Look at how holy I am. So they would enlarge the borders. But here, as they came to Gennesaret, all of a sudden we see that the men of that place begin, they recognize him. And as soon as they recognize they sent him, they send into all the surrounding regions, that they bring to him once again everyone who was sick. And they begged him. They said, All we want to do is we want to touch the hem of your garment. And if we do that, anyone who touched it was made perfectly well. So it's just this beautiful picture. And I want you to see how it goes from Nazareth to doubting, Herod to not really fully understanding. Then you get to the 5,000 where the disciples are now beginning to see this is God. The disciples knew what was going on. didn't say the multitudes knew what was going on. All the multitudes knew is the Lord said, you guys sit down. My disciples are going to feed you. They realize that here, those who are the servants of God, glutted me. That's what they knew. They didn't know of the the, the dividing. They didn't understand all that was going on. The disciples did. And as they're now crossing, there's another question. What's the limitation? They're on a boat, and they've been rowing for hours and hours and hours, and their limitation is what? Well, we're halfway across. Jesus just comes walking. (laughs) Like, I, it's a little bit difficult in a rowboat. It's easier to walk, guys. You don't have to worry about the wind pushing you. And he comes walking, and this is where they think it's a ghost. He says, no, I am. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, understand how this is building and building and building, understanding what? Verse 33 is your key. They begin to worship and so you are the Son of God. If you get those two things in order you worship he's the son of god realize you just give yourself over to him he's the one who breaks he's the one who blesses he's the one who distributes and, and when you give yourself when you give whatever you want to offer to um others to the lord first and he does it all of a sudden they're like if we could only come to you if we could only come to you and um, amazingly they don't even have to say we need to touch you physically That hem of the garment shows authority. If we just touch what is a representation of your authority. And I want to share with you what his authority is. This book that you hold in your lap, this is his authority. This is his word. When he speaks this to you and he speaks this to me, this is authoritative. And if if his word speaks to you to say you can overcome sin, guess what? You can overcome sin. Say, no, no, you don't understand. I can't. You don't understand how long. You don't understand how deep. You don't understand the secrets that I'm keeping. I'm telling you that with Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as an obstacle or a limitation. If he says you're free, he who the son sets free is free indeed. If he says you can do this, you can do this. There's nothing... Nothing that can hinder you when it's his will and hims directing you. So I love the heart of it because what they do is they simply recognize his authority. The authority brings about a completion. And that's what we have to do. Recognize this authority. Give it to him. Realize I may be broken in that process. But praise God that I'm broken. Because when I'm broken, I'll tell you what, I am humbled. I am humble. So, so, you know, that's something that we learn through just time in the saddle. That, you know what, I can't go all haughty thinking I'm all this and more. I have to be like Moses, learning that I'm nothing. That without him, I can do nothing. But God uses nothings. And he can use nothings in the most powerful ways. Look at what he did through Moses. So I think it's just a great word for us. And the, the, the question that I'm just going to leave you with is, who is Jesus to you? Who is he? And, and I hope you're all one. just going to leave and say, truly, 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 Jesus, you are the son of God. And in you, there's no limitations. Amen? Amen. Amen? Well, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your heart. We thank you for this time. Lord, just this crescendo of just you revealing yourself. And, and Father, I pray that we would not be those who see limitations like those in Nazareth, where you could do no, not a lot of mighty works. You're limited. But, but when we come to this point, there is no limit. There there isn't an obstacle with feeding 5,000. There isn't an uh, an obstacle with, with healing everyone that those of Gennesaret brought to you. And so, Father, we're just simply saying we want to give ourselves over to you. And we're asking, Lord, just you take our lives, do what you do so well, take our ministries. Take everything that we have and we offer it to you. You bless it. You break it. You give back what is needed. And you multiply it, Lord, as we give it to those who are outside. As we give it to others, Lord. Bless it. Break it. Use it for your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. Amen.